Well, good morning again. If you have your Bible, go ahead and find James chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be using that as a springboard into the rest of the sermon. And um, we are going to be looking at a, a series this month titled Resolving Everyday Conflict. And uh, to get started, I want to kind of tell you a, a bit of a story. And this is, again, a hypothetical story. This is not a reference to my life. Uh, could be, might have been at some point, but uh, let, me, let me share this story with you. So there's this guy named Sam. Sam has been traveling on business. He's been away for uh, the last three days, and he finally made it back home to his wife and his three kids, and he walks in the door uh, at about 6.30 in the evening, and he hears his two oldest kids in the back fighting and he sees his wife at the sink, she's washing dishes, and then he opened the door just in time to witness his youngest knocking a cup off the counter and spilling milk all over the kitchen floor. So Sam, he drops his bags and goes to the kitchen and helps clean up this milk that was spilled everywhere. And then he asks a fatal question, what's for dinner? And Sam's wife, not even looking up from what she's doing, she responds with, I haven't started it yet. Which then Sam replies with another fatal question, why not? Don't we usually have dinner like an hour before? Now, he didn't expect that this question would create such a whirlwind of emotion and conflict. All he was was hungry. And... There's really no words to describe the, the hateful stare in which he then received from his wife. And there's also no other words that were spoken the rest of the evening between Sam and his wife. Now, again, that's a hypothetical story. But it might be very real to you. It might be very real of how your life goes on a regular basis. And what's at the core of this story? What's right in the center of all of this story it's not just a husband and a wife. It's not just three kids, but it's conflict. Conflict is all over the place. Conflict is something that's unavoidable. It could be fighting between siblings, fighting between a husband and wife. It could be dealing with difficult people at work. It could be a difficult boss situation. And there's always conflict. Conflict is no stranger to church life either, is it? If you've been in church for any amount of time, you know that conflict exist in the realm of Christians as well. So people get angry, they get disgruntled because someone said something or did something and it hurt your feelings or their feelings and there's conflict. In conflict it can be found anywhere and everywhere. It doesn't matter where you live in this world, as long as you're dealing with people, you're going to be dealing with conflict. And so we wanna, what we want to help you do this year, and uh, I think this is a pretty appropriate sermon series to start the, the new year with, is dealing with everyday conflict, because we're all going to experience it. And maybe you're not experiencing conflict, maybe at home or at work, but you will. You're dealing with people, and you're going to be dealing with these kinds of conflicts. So what we want to do, and the purpose that we have over the next four weeks, is to drive home a biblical format or forming uh, to deal with conflict and how we do that. And so we want to lay out some groundwork for you 
to work towards peace, to have real peace, whether it be at work or at home or um, just um, amongst uh, family and friends. We want to give you kind of a, a, a form to work from. And so these series of sermons that we have, they are all coming out of an outline that we find from this book that is in our, well, they're actually all gone because of first service, but uh, this book right here called Resolving Everyday Conflict. Again, it's a very small book. I, I trust you could all probably read this in a short amount of time, and it would do you really good to do that. And so the sermon series that we have is coming kind of as an outline from this book. So what we find in this book is helping us get to a place where we can not just resolve the conflict, but really have peace in that conflict as well. So the resource emphasis that we have this quarter revolves around relationships, it revolves around marriage, and, and dealing with conflict. And so there's another book that is available uh, there in the, the, welcome, in the Welcome Center that is called Pursuing Peace, which we'll promote in the next couple of weeks. Um, but it's another great resource in dealing with conflict. So at any time, people are constantly uh, going to be in conflict or dealing with conflict or just coming out of conflict. But are we handling it the right way? Are we approaching it with a, with a biblical mindset, with a biblical agenda, or are we doing it maybe on our own? So it's our hope that there will be relationships restored because of this. It's our hope that there's going to be reconciliation found in homes, maybe at school, maybe at work, maybe even in the church. That's our intention. That's our goal with this series. So the best time to deal with conflict is before the conflict happens. The best way to, to handle conflict is to have a mindset before you get into the conflict. Just like Sam could have had maybe a different mindset as he asked a silly question. He could have had a, a different kind of thinking, and that's part of what we're going to talk about this morning. So <clears throat> let's answer this question to start things off with. What is conflict and where does it come from? What is it? And where does it come from? Well, conflict is simply being at odds with someone else, meaning you're, you're opposed to them. You're in opposition to them. Conflict is more than the fact that we're just different and we have different preferences. That doesn't necessitate conflict, but it, it, it is really where we end up with those differences and with those preferences of whether or not we're ending up in conflict. Now, why would you be at odds with someone else? Well, James explains for us in chapter 4, look at verses 1 and 2. James gives an explanation to us of where conflict comes from and what is behind all of this. Why do we end up at odds with one another? In James chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. James, he teaches us here that conflict starts because someone is not getting what they want, not what they desire. The root cause of all conflict is simply sin. Sin is the root cause of conflict. The reason why there is conflict is because somebody has sinned. Now, I'm sure probably nobody in this room has ever sinned and caused a conflict. Sarcasm. We all probably have. And so we, but most of the time, we don't usually identify our sin. We like to identify other people's and that they started it. It's like the, the you know, the, the five-year-olds. Well, he started it. 
and we as adults do the same thing. Now, it doesn't matter whether one party started it or both had, had started really this whole sinful approach. It ends up in conflict, and it starts because of sin. So James, what he's teaching us here, he talks about our passions. He says, your passions are at war within you. Now, who, who's in conflict? It starts inside of us. And it's because of these conflicts inside of us that then comes out. And look at the word that he uses here to describe this. He says, your passions. This Greek word that's used here by James for passions, it means pleasure or desires for pleasure. It is this desire for pleasure that leads us to conflict with other people. We are blasted constantly with advertisements, whether it be insurance companies or candy bars, that are, that are blasting us with this idea of being self-absorbed and thinking only of self, and that we are to seek these things for self-satisfaction. So every commercial that you see, it has this as the target. This is what it's aiming at in your soul, in your heart, in your mind, is self and so we're constantly bombarded with these things, and it leads us to believe that it is all about us. And that influences the way that we talk to other people and we handle conflict or don't really handle conflict, because all of it is driving at our pleasure. What is going to please me? What's going to satisfy me? Now, the source of conflict is simply not only sin, it's, let's label it again, selfishness. Selfishness. Selfishness happens when you don't get what you want or someone's not treating you like you think you deserve. That's what selfishness is. Christians are not immune to this conflict because they're not immune to selfishness. They're not immune to other people's selfishness. And so conflict happens when we start to believe that we should have what we want, when we want it, how we want it. No matter the impact that it has on other people, no matter the pain or, or the, the consequence, we want pleasure. We want our passions to be fulfilled. Now, we would never verbally say that it's all about me, but a lot of times we act that way, don't we? Our actions display that it is all about us. Don't we all like it whenever people make much of us? When people, you know, promote you and say great things about you and you kind of get puffed up or, or you know, you go to a restaurant and th that waiter is just, just on top of things and just making you feel great but what happens when you go back to the same restaurant with a different waiter and they don't make much of you? What is your attitude? What is your response? Maybe you vow never to go back there because the service was so bad. Whenever we encounter people that don't make much of us, it, it kind of leaves us in a place where we are just angry and frustrated because we like to have things about us. We love it when the world revolves around us, and when it's not, we usually end up very frustrated and upset. Now, people do this whenever they're looking for churches as well. They, they look for, what's going to fit me? What's going to fit my, my family or, or my thinking of what church should be? And then whenever that thing that they're looking for becomes not as good as what they thought it was, then they're off to something else finding another place that will give them the pleasure that they were looking for, they were seeking for. And all of what this is is being self-absorbed. And self-absorbed uh, people find themselves in conflict constantly. It's the root cause of conflict. It's being self-absorbed. 
selfishness, to label again, is a form of idolatry. Selfishness is a form of idolatry. Now, most of us probably wouldn't say, yeah, Pastor, I'm an idolater this morning. But in the reality of what selfishness is, it reveals to us that we are idolaters at heart. Because what happens in selfishness is that we are elevating ourselves above God and above other people, which then in turn creates an idol. What are the first two commandments? The first commandment is, have no other gods before me. And the second is, you can speak up. This is, make no idols, right? But whenever we're selfish, what we're doing, we're elevating self above others, above God. And so we're rejecting the first and we're rejecting the second commandment. And so we're in violation of both, which means we're idolaters. We've made another God and it's us. By being selfish, we've broken these first two commands. So it's not just a, well, you know, I'm just a little selfish at times. No, you're an idolater. Like, put, label yourself as that. Like, would you be willing to do that this morning, to really label yourself accurately of, well, you know, I'm a sinner. That's pretty broad, isn't it? Say, so, well, I'm just kind of selfish. That's a little more narrow. When you say, I'm an idolater, it really kind of narrows the focus of your sin against God, doesn't it? And I think we need to feel the weight of that. Christians should be different. We should be different because we should have a new self. Let me take you to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. Paul is writing here in Ephesians, and he says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Now notice here the difference that Paul makes between the old and the new. He labels it as that. Old self, new self. That's how different it is. It's not like, well, the better self, a little bit different self. No, it's new. It's something new and different than it was before. The old self is self-absorbed, it's filled with pride. And the new self, as Paul says, it's created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's very different. Righteousness and holiness is opposite of selfishness and pride. So if, if you think you're growing in holiness, that means you should be losing selfishness and pride, right? Those are things that should be dying away. They're the old things. As he says, put off your old self. It belongs to the former manner of life. It is corrupt through deceitful desires. You know it's corrupt. And so you start to put this off. And then we have a different spirit, a different self. And it's one that is focused on righteousness and holiness. Also notice here what Paul says, what changes with this new life versus the old life. Our desires change and our thinking changes. This is so important for us to grasp because if you've been a Christian for a decade or four decades and nothing has changed, that you're still just as selfish, just as arrogant, just as proud, just as grumpy as what you were a decade ago or 40 years ago, then you probably don't know Jesus Christ. You probably have not been made new. You probably don't have the new spirit that Ephesians 4 is talking about. Your desires will change, and your thinking will then change. Whenever your desires change, your thinking changes, then your behavior changes. 
this is how the Christian should live in the new life. Now, with conflict, sometimes things just get miscommunicated and then misunderstood. And that's kind of what happens with Sam, right? Sam miscommunicated what he was really feeling. He was feeling his hunger, but he asked the question of, where's dinner? Which is obviously the wrong question to ask in the moment of constant conflict that was happening. So whenever we miscommunicate, we then end up being misunderstood, and then conflict ensues. So conflict is a place where we can be maybe good-intentioned, and then it just gets miscommunicated, and then things go crazy. Now, our tendency is to usually jump to conclusions, and it's usually not good conclusions, but maybe ill-intentioned conclusions about the other person. And maybe the only exercise that you get on a weekly basis is jumping to conclusions. And, and that's, that's bad exercise for you. We want a different kind of outcome. We want a different kind of thinking. We tend to have this sinful habit of taking offense and then assuming the worst from the person. That they intended the, the worst thing for us possible. And that's the conclusion we grab onto, and it's not helpful But this should definitely not be the case for us as Christians. We should try and do the opposite. We should assume the best until it's been proven that's not really what they intended. We should assume the best thing and then wait for the facts to come out. Now, as the authors of this book in Resolving Everyday Conflict, they say this, we have natural differences, but our sinful nature is really what makes conflict so destructive. Secular conflict resolution tells you that personal differences are something you can simply talk through. It misses the biblical insight that sinful desires often trigger differences that can only be resolved by a change of hearts. This is what James is getting at. This is what Paul is getting at. The old and the new. How does the new come? It comes with this transformation that happens only through Jesus Christ. People have desires. And those desires, when they go unmet, they then turn and develop into demands, and those demands then develop into ultimatums. This becomes unfair and unreasonable most of the time. This is why some people remain in a constant state of conflict because of their unreasonable and unfair expectations of somebody else. That they became demands, and then those demands became ultimatums, and if you don't do it my way, we're done. So, How do people handle conflict? We've discovered kind of what it is and where it comes from. Well, according to Sandy and Johnson, there's three ways that people handle conflict. One way that people handle conflict is escaping. Escaping. A second way is attacking. Or a third way is peacemaking. Now, escaping, it is this response to conflict in a way that is not solving anything, but it's really just trying to avoid it. People escape conflict by either pretending that it doesn't exist or run from the conflict and maybe run even physically away from what what conflict is there. Now, neither response solves anything, but it's only acting as though everything is all right when it's really not. Sandy and Johnson have termed this peace-faking. Peace-faking. Saying, oh, everything's fine. Everything's okay at home. Everything's okay in my marriage. Everything's okay at my work when it's not. Now, if somebody told you something to be true and then you found out that it wasn't true, what would you call them? 
how often do we do this, that we, we fake peace when there is no peace. We put on this appearance that everything's okay, it's good, it's, it's fine, when it's definitely not. My, my dad always said that denial's not a river in Egypt. Like, in that, some of you got that. It took me a while, whenever I was like five, and he told me that. I don't even know where Egypt is. Peace faking is this denial of, yeah, everything's fine. It's not. And this is where escape comes in. It's claiming that there's peace and there's not. And we run. A, a second way people handle conflict is attacking. The attack response to conflict is, again, not focused on really finding peace, but it's, it's really focused on winning the argument. On Oh, yeah, okay, you want to go there. All right, all right. The attack strategy is used by people that enjoy exerting their power or their control over other people, but it's also used by those that are fearful, that are weak, that are insecure, that are feeling vulnerable. Some people jump instantly to attacking when conflict comes, but others resort to attacking after they have tried to escape as much as possible, then they get backed into a corner, and then they just explode onto everyone. Now, with the attack strategy to conflict, most people resort to bullying by intimidation or some other form of manipulation. But most attacks come in the form of verbal assault, verbal abuse of some sort. And this can include anything from insults to name-calling, which I really believe is showing that you've lost the argument and you have nothing else intelligent, intelligent to say. And so you just start calling names to people. Just watch the next debates this year. Verbal assaults can also be a form in the form of humor and sarcasm. And this can also be a form of of what attack looks like. Somebody says something and it hurts your feelings, and so what's your response? It's this great sarcastic tone that you use. This is all a mask for attack. The attack response is focusing on the other person's failures and blaming them for the problem. It's not seeking for peace to be found, but for you to get what you want, for your pleasure, your desires to be met. And it doesn't matter the damage that it caused or the pain that, that, that happens because of it, that we are only seeking our desires, our passions. Now, what is your default response to conflict? For you this morning, what would you say is your default? Is it escaping? Is it, is it attacking? Is it maybe a mixture of both? In the book, they talk about this idea of the slippery slope that we get on. We kind of go one direction or the other. Maybe, maybe you do both of these things. Maybe you do escape, escape, and then you explode and attack. Maybe you attack and then you try to run. It's kind of like you know, the, the guy that doesn't want to stay in the fight. He slaps and then runs away. Like, that's kind of you. You, you, know, you say you're one-liner, then you slam the door behind you like, yeah, I got them. It's a poor strategy, by the way. Nothing is solved. No conflict is, is resolved in that. Well, there's these two basic responses and sinful responses that we have, and then there's a third category. And this leads us to really God's way of handling conflict, and that is peacemaking. Peacemaking is a different way of thinking. It's, it's not thinking about self in the moment of conflict, and it's not thinking of the other person's failure in the conflict, but it's, it's a different 
me versus you. It's an us thing. It's us. How do we get back together? How do, how do we resolve this and be at peace with one another? That's the thinking. It's very different than, well, you need to treat me like, or I can't believe you did. It's us. This is the thought pattern that we should have. The authors of this book, they're very helpful in offering four G's, which we're going to cover the first this morning, to help us move toward biblical peacemaking. And through this month, we're going to cover these four very briefly. And again, we want you to read the book. We want you to read your Bible along with the book and find this is right out of God's Word, what they're saying, what they're pointing us to. And so we want you to pick up your Bible and the book at the same time. Now, the first G that they list here of of how do we handle this, how do we get to peacemaking, it is go higher. Go higher. It's bringing God into your situation. That's what we need to do. The first step is to go higher. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 31 through 33, which should be very familiar to you if you've been around here for any length of time. We've uh, said this verse a lot here. Paul writes, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Here we see Paul's attitude and his intentions for how to live his life. He is intending on glorifying God when? You can answer that. All the time. All the time. Whether he's eating or drinking or whatever he's doing, he is intending to glorify God. This is why he says, whatever you do, which also includes what in life? Conflict. Even in conflict, he wants to glorify God. Is that your intention when you get into a conflict? Is to glorify God or to win or to run? Paul says, whatever you do. He, he wants God to be glorified. And then he goes on in the next two verses, 32 and 33, and he, he talks about dealing with people. The Jews, the Greeks, he says, everyone and everything. I'm not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. And what is the purpose of that? That they may be saved. Doesn't that glorify God? This intention that he has is to give God glory in all things, even if it's the worst of times for him, even in the midst of conflict. So for us, as we think about conflict on a daily basis, this is the good starting, starting place for us to think, okay, how do I bring God into this situation? And this is the question that we need to ask ourselves as we try to go higher, is how can I glorify God in this situation? How do I do that? This is what Sam should have done when he opened that door and heard all this conflict going on. The first question he should have asked was, not where dinner is, but how do I bring God into this situation? I'm sure he's tired. I'm sure it's, it's later than he wanted to be getting home. I'm sure he wasn't wanting to walk into a, a chaotic mess of things. But he should have expected that that could be possible. And then when that conflict is there, he should have asked this question, how can I glorify God in this situation? But Sam's wife could have asked the same question, right? How can I glorify God when my husband is so insensitive to what I've been dealing with? How can I glorify God in this? And even with dealing with your children in conflict, you pull them apart, and then you, you think, how can I bring God into this situation? 
this is such a vital question of how do we get to a, a peaceful state? Either we are glorifying God or we are glorifying someone else or something else. Either we are making God look great or making something else look great. And this is this idea of, of glorifying God is that we are revealing his greatness. We are bringing attention to him. That's what glorifying God is. So whenever you glorify him, you're making him great. You're bringing attention to who he is. The moment that we back away from him, we're not glorifying him. We're glorifying something else. And in conflict, it could be ourself. No, I can handle this. I don't really need God. And you think that you are great. Or maybe you think that the situation, the conflict is too great. This is all a wrong train of thought. God is greater. And this should be why we, we want to bring him into the situation. How can I glorify God in this situation? The natural reaction that we have when conflict occurs is to only focus on what other people did wrong. We, we, we see what they did and we're like, oh man. And you bring up all the stuff from the past and you get all angry again and frustrated and you just point out all these things that they always do and they never do it right. Let me give you some advice. Don't use those words, always and never, because they're never true, always. They're, they're just not. There's always a margin in there where it's not true. This, this moment that we have where conflict ensues. We have this natural reaction to point to other people's failures and then dwell on those. And this never leads to reconciliation or peacemaking. It only leads to frustration and bitterness. The approach that brings about real solution to our conflict is to focus on the message of the gospel and what was accomplished for us on the cross by Jesus Christ. This is the, this is the starting place for us. And I want to share with you several scriptures out of Romans to kind of help us understand what has been done. What is the gospel about? I'm going to take you to Romans chapter 3. And I, I do want you to turn there. Turn to Romans chapter 3. If you're in 1 Corinthians, turn back one book and you're there. Romans chapter 3 and verses 10 through 12. Paul writes in Romans 3, starting in verse 10, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Who would be included in that? Everyone. Paul is, is throwing a very wide net here. And then in verse 23 of the same chapter, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does it mean to glorify God? You make him great. You draw attention to him. And so whenever you're not glorifying God, what are you doing? You're drawing attention to something else or maybe to yourself, and then you have sinned. So all have sinned. All have turned aside. All have done this. There's none that does good. Not even one. Now, where does this leave us? Well, if you go to chapter 5, verse 8, it says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. This is a great verse of Scripture right here. But God shows his love when? 
when you're still an offense to him, when you have sinned against him, when you have not glorified him, when you've made something else great and, and that he is not great, he has shown his love to you. And how does he do that? The last part of that verse, Christ died for us. Now, why did Christ have to die? Look at Romans 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What has your sin earned you? Death. Does that mean just a physical death? Well, if you take this this verse, there's this free gift of eternal life, so this would mean that there's an eternal death, and this is what Christ died for you for, so you wouldn't suffer that. And when did he do it? Well, before any of us were even born, right? And this is the amazing, the amazing part of the gospel is that he he died for you in your place and that we can have eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And let me take you to Romans 8, verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. You don't have to suffer the death that is promised to all who are in rebellion to God. There's a freedom that's found in Christ. And let me take you to Romans 10, verses 8 through 11. says, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Why will you not suffer shame? Because Christ has taken your shame. He became the curse for you. He took the cup of wrath for you. You don't have to. You find freedom in Jesus Christ. Freedom from sin. You find a newness of life in him. It's through what he has done. Your sins are washed away. They are gone because of the death of Jesus Christ. But it's also through the resurrection of Christ that he proves that he was true. He was right He was who he claimed to be. And everyone who believes in him will not suffer shame. We will be justified before God. We will be saved before God. And so it's this story of the gospel that should help us as Christians as we encounter each other in conflict. And it's in true belief in Jesus Christ that comes true repentance from sin, selfishness, from pride, we, we turn from those things. We turn to Jesus. And so this is where bringing God into this situation is so important. Because we realize the gigantic amount of sin that God has forgiven us. And when did he forgive you for it? When you were still a sinner. He forgave you. And this should humble us. And in that humility, it should help us to deal with other people's sin against us conflict that that comes. Let me take you back to Ephesians chapter 4 and and hear what Paul has to say about this whole idea in verse 31 and 32. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Christian, hear that. 
as Christ forgave you, why should we not have bitterness and anger and wrath and all and these other things? Because we're new. Something new has come. We should have new desires, a new way of thinking. And that's why he says, be kind to one another, because you can be. You're new. Be tenderhearted, because you can be. Be forgiving to one another, because you can be. Why? Because Christ has done that for you. We should be humbled. A great question to ask ourselves in this moment of conflict is, is this thing worth fighting over? Again, our, our hypothetical with Sam. Is this something that I should bring up right now? Is it something we should fight over? Or is this an offense that could be overlooked? Is this a moment that I could, dis- I could display mercy and love and not hold that sin against them? Christ has shown us mercy and love. He has overlooked our sin. He has paid for our sin. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, to love someone who has sinned against you means that you're, you're not going to deal harshly with them, just like God has not dealt harshly with you. No, we deal kindly and gently and patiently with them, just as God has dealt with us. And this is how you cover the sin of another with love. But understand that overlooking someone's sin doesn't mean that it wasn't sin. If they sinned against you, don't say, well, it was okay. Sin's not okay. And so I know, I know parenting style, right? To say, oh, well, say that it's okay. Don't, don't tell your kids to say that, right? It's not okay that they've been sinned against. So again, we need the right terminology here. Sin's not okay. But we don't hold that sin against them. We don't hold resentment towards them. We don't hold back forgiveness because of the sin. And this is what Peter means and what Paul means of how do we, how do we display love and the covering of sin with love. Now, Sandy and Johnson, they write this. They say, overlooking means treating others the way that you want to be treated, giving them the same grace-filled tolerance you wish others would give you. Overlooking works for minor hurts and small bumps of everyday life. It isn't the right strategy for handling major wrongs. So there's a difference between kind of these little sins, maybe a comment that was there and it was just kind of a hurtful thing or a bad question, the bad timing. You overlook it. You cover it with grace, with mercy, with love. But they also identify that there's bigger things, larger things that we, we don't just simply pass off. And they're, they're helpful in the book. They give us uh, kind of a definition of what things we should not just overlook and things that are not appropriate to just let go. And there's four things here. The first is this, when it's damaging to your relationship with a person. If it's damaging to your relationship with a person, it needs to be dealt with. It's not something we just overlook. Well, the second thing, it's hurting other people, which is really connected to the first thing. And then the third, it's hurting the offender, the one that's actually doing it. It's harming them. And then the last thing there is, it is significantly dishonoring to God. Now, all sin obviously is dishonoring to God, but there's some things that are maybe more well-known or more public that are more disgraceful to God. And these are things that we do not simply overlook, but we engage and we deal with these things. Overlooking someone's sins is an act of humility that is driven by our understanding of what Jesus Christ has done for us. 
of the love, of the mercy, of the grace that's been shown to us. But we do not, uh, but we need to be careful here whenever we, we overlook sin and we don't wander into this idea of relativism. Relativism is one of the most dangerous and also one of the most attractive things uh, that pass as humility. Now, relativism is saying that there's no absolute truth and that someone would be arrogant to say that there is an absolute. And relativism will lead you to remain in your pride and remain in the conflict with other people. It's not a resolution. It doesn't solve anything. Because relativism is simply a cloak for pride. It's veiling what your pride really is. It is uh, in its obscurity of what is true. It allows for the person to be the judge and the jury, which essentially makes them out to take the place of God. Again, a form of idolatry. If there are no absolute truths, then you're really free to act as God. You can say, well, you know, that's, that's true for you, not really true for me. It's, you know, it might be offensive to this person, but not to them. And, you know, it might offend God or it might not. It doesn't really matter. So in a conflict, someone might say something like this. And maybe you've said this. Well, we will just have to agree to disagree. Now, this is not solving the problem of conflict. Acting as if both people are equally right about the subject or the problem. This doesn't solve the problem. doesn't solve the conflict. Now, this statement, it can be true... If someone is referring to their opinions, but also if both parties understand that we're talking about opinions. Like, which candy bar is the best? It's Milky Way, of course. Like, I can give my opinion, be like, mm, no, it's Butterfinger. And like, we have a whole variety of, of differences. But that doesn't mean we need to be at odds with each other. If you find yourself being at odds with each other over candy bars, you got real problems, man. Like, come see me. We'll talk through that. Um, our conflict... Our conflict, again, comes from our desires to be right, and we, we manipulate situations and even people sometimes. And sometimes we do it with just our opinions. And so you can use the statement, well, we'll just have to agree to disagree. When you're talking about french fries or, or restaurants or whatever, that, that's fine. It doesn't matter. But we can't apply that to facts. We can't use that statement with facts Agreeing to disagree is acting as though you are being humble by giving room for their argument or their opinion. But this is not real humility. Because humility must submit to objective reality. Which means it, there, is, there is absolute truth here. Humility. It understands that we could have a distorted view of objective reality. And that we misunderstand what the truth actually is. But a, a truly humble person, they, they will submit to the new and the right understanding of what the truth is when it's discovered. When they discover what truth is, they, they cling to that. This is what real humility is. It's not just saying, well, we just have to agree, agree to disagree on everything. No, there are things that are true, and they will always be true. And we, we, can't, we can't wander into relativism. And how do we know what is true? Where do we find truth? It's from God, right? He's the author of truth. And so if we push God out of the equation when we're in conflict, we're not going to find truth because we push truth out. So this is why we need to go higher. We need to bring God into the situation because he is truth. And so we don't talk around the Bible. 
and just use Christianese on people, but we read out of Scripture, we speak out of Scripture, out of truth, also in context. We accurately deal with the problem with God's word. We go higher. We bring God into the situation. We can find true peace because there's real truth. We need to be reminding ourselves of the gospel message of forgiveness and of love. And, and how do we remind ourselves the truth of God's word? So what do we do when we can't simply overlook someone's sins against us? I said there's four things here that we, we can't overlook that. Well, you'll have to come back next week to hear the answer to that. Or you can pick up the book. Well, you can't because they're all gone. So the next week we'll have some more. This is the starting place, Christian, of how do we deal with conflict on a daily basis with everything. It's this first G. Go higher. And Put the intention in your heart of 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that you're going to glorify God in all things, in whatever is going on. You're going to bring him in to the situation. You're not going to ignore him. not going to make him second on the list of, well, you know, I'll, I'll please him after I please myself here. No, he is of the highest of priority. We do not ignore who he is because if we do, we will not find real peace. And we will not be honoring God if we push him out of this this approach to conflict resolution. So at this time, we are going to move into a time of response. And this morning, as we move into a time of response, we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper. And I think this is such an appropriate thing for us to do as we talk about conflict and peace being made. Because what we observe in, in communion, in the Lord's Supper, is the one that we had offended, he came to make peace with us. He came. He initiated. He did this. And this is what we celebrate this morning. And so for us, as we sit here this morning, as we've just heard, this is the approach that we should have to, to glorify God, to go higher. Let's do that for just a moment. I'm going to ask you to, to bow your heads, to, to spend some time just praying and thinking of maybe the conflicts that are in your life. And praying through those things and asking God to give you insight and wisdom into how have I been maybe the one offending. Think on the cross. Think on what's been accomplished through Jesus Christ. Think about the change that should be in your life, the transformation that should be real. And ask God to, to help you see accurately what, what is reality, what is true.